Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Thanks for checking out this feed of my favorite interviews and best guests over the last seven years. Whether it's your first time or you're already in a deep dive, make sure you head to billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Again, that is billsimmonsinterviews.theringer.com. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Adam McKay is here. We've circled this podcast really since... I don't know, 1978, when it, I don't know when podcast, we, we run into each other, we talk about it and it's just never happened for some reason, but now it's happening. It's happening right Your now. vice is out. You're really using me for your, your awards promotion. I'm just in the circuit for you That's right That's it. Now. I'm cranking you for like hits and eyeballs. That's all, <laughs> all this is about. We've, uh, we've known each other a while. I've used you as a resource for certain things over the years, kind of in the down low. We, we've, our daughters have played in soccer games against each other. We've run into each other in weird places. Yes. Yeah. Which, uh, but somehow never did a podcast. So here we are. I love it. You came in, you were looking at the posters and we were talking 70 sports movies. Oh, so the, the good. epic run of fast break and fish that save Pittsburgh and one-on-one and inside moves and inside moves. Some, some really great warriors footage back in the days when the warriors were basically just the league's cocaine franchise. And that's about it. Really now they're good. the signature I, I, franchise. Don't you see uh Robert Parrish? He's in there. In there. He's in oh, there. Yeah. yeah. Jamal Wilkes. Yeah. Uh, also, I love that the guy who plays the star in inside moves, Harold Sylvester shows up. I'm impressed. Shows up in uh vision quest as the teacher who is like hanging out with Matthew Modine being like, while he's playing hoops. Kind of gets in with Carla a little bit. He does. It's a little awkward. So that guy, he's in that. He's in Fast Break. He plays DC Dacey in Fast Break. Really? Oh, yeah. And he's attracted to Swish, who is- right. Who is a woman pretending to be a man. And it's one of the many reasons Fast Break is the most politically incorrect sports movie of all time. <laughs> it is just a PC apocalypse. Uh, and then he's also an officer and a gentleman. He had a nice little run. That's right. Yeah. What's he, he was, do now? He's got to be around. I don't know. I, I mean, I he was like, like a six foot seven black guy. I don't know if there's a lot of roles for him in like 1982. Keith, Keith David messed him up. 
Like, <laughs> he came along. Market correction. Yeah, yeah. We always talk about that on the Ringer podcast when there's market corrections for an actor versus an actor, like Tommy Lee Jones and Scott Glenn. <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones is like, I'm just taking this. You're going to be over here. Oh, but Scott Glenn in Urban Cowboy. Scott Glenn is great. Oh. He was t- n- n- uh, neck and neck with Tommy Lee for like four years there. And then. Have you done uh, Urban Cowboy? Is it rewatchable? You know, it's interesting. There's some domestic violence stuff in that movie. I just watched it. It's really oh, good. It's, it's messed up. There's oh, yeah. some shocking domestic violence stuff where it was just the air where it's like, all right, they've worked it out. But <laughs> oh, now it's like it would, right. ne- it would never fly now. Oh, Travolta hits her. Hits her. And then wow. if you did that in a movie now, the audience is like, you, you, you're 100% you, Yeah, you're right. out. You, we and can't come back Travolta from this. Travolta in one scene says- I have to go to my KKK meeting and that's it. You don't see anything else about it, but it's kind of like thrown away. It's a tricky movie. It's a tricky movie. The verdict has one like that too, where Paul Newman, spoiler alert, finds out that his girlfriend had been working for the other side all along. And he like punches her in a bar. I remember that. And it's horrible. By the way, that bar, I used to hang out in that bar. That's 7B in the East Village. Oh, my God. And it was like right around the corner from my house. It's a beautiful bar, and it's in like 10 movies. You could see it all the time. It is funny how the same locations get used for different things over and over again, different sports bars, sets. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I think at one point uh, <laughs> there's a little violence in that. I think Dick Van Dyke it's, it's, grabs the woman by the arm, and like she's like, you bruise me. You're hurting me. Like, the 70s yeah. and 80s are violent. <laughs> <laughs> they they and and not politically correct. And nope. I think over the nope. last ten years things have shifted. But we talked about that when you know, we've done rewatchables podcasts on different movies and even the comedy movies from even last decade. Like some of the Apatow movies. Yeah. Some of the language, some of the stuff, like yeah, it just wouldn't gay? fly anymore. You're so gay, like Yeah. Well, I think you guys did uh Step Brothers. We did. And there's one moment in there where granted it's the villain. But he says the F word. Oh, yeah. Repeatedly. Yeah. And you're right. Like it's all this. We meant him to be an awful guy, but it like jumps out of the movie whenever you hear it. Yeah. Where do you see comedy in 2019 as people are just more uptight than ever? And I feel like I've asked this question on pods for the last couple of years, but now we're at a point, you know, I mean, I, you've had a, your whole career came out of the comedy world. Now you're doing other stuff, but Part of the joy and the fun of comedy is pushing the envelope, pushing the line, kind of crossing over into a place you're not really supposed to go, but you do it the right way. And if everyone's terrified to go near that line, where are we going to end up? Who is doing it? I mean, it's my answer would be no one is doing it right now, right? I mean, it kind of seems like that. The risk reward is out of whack. John Mulaney, a little bit. I felt like Chappelle's two Netflix specials, he crossed some lines. Oh, yeah. And yeah. people are like, oh, my God, did you hear what Chappelle said? But he's he's reached this point now just as a celebrity and an artist and everything where he got to pass a little bit. It's yeah. tough, though. Yeah, there's not much out there right now. Comedy is, is a really weird spot right now. I mean, like, no one knows what's going on. You look at the movies that are being put out and – everyone's super confused and like the kind of buddy bromance movies don't really work. The, you know, it seemed like Melissa McCarthy was going to be the one and she's had a couple funny moments, but like, who is the comedy star right now? Kevin Hart, I think like, I can't even think who it is. Like Stiller doesn't do it anymore. I guess Rogan is still in the game a little bit. Right. 
Yeah. I, I wonder, to me, it's always cyclical. And last decade was just so strong. Oh, it was amazing. Between what, all the stuff oh, you yeah. were doing, the, all the Apatow stuff. And it just was like kind of that whole frat pack thing. It's funny because we're doing the hangover on uh, on the rewatchable. So I was researching it. Oh, okay. And that was, I think, 03. And Todd Phillips, the two movies he had done were Road Trip and he had done that documentary about frat house, about college which kids, love, which was way. really good. Which you know the story about that, right? That they had their Sundance Award taken away from them. Yeah. Because they faked several scenes in it. Yeah. He did it with a guy named Andrew Gerland, who we've worked with before. Oh, wow. In fact, the most underrated movie we ever did at Sanchez is a movie called The Virginity Hit. And it's actually- I didn't see that one. It's actually really good. They marketed it as like a losing your virginity kind of movie. It was like one of those movies was like, oh, I got to lose my virginity. But it's way more like nuanced and interesting than that. It's really cool. No one saw it. But anyway, that's Todd Phillips' old partner. And Frat House is incredible. I love that movie. So when Hangover started- it feels like that was like like the demarcation point because after that, there's just this run for the next you know, I I have know, a theory, eight, nine years. I have a theory on that. What is it? My theory is uh, the Avid, that it was all about the Avid. What does that mean? That before that, you had to like hand cut your movies. Like people forget like in the mid 90s, Everyone hand, they use the, the what, what's it called? The cam where you like, Oh, yeah. And so every cut you did, you had to be like, okay, we're everyone in the room would have to get together and go, we're doing this cut. Are we sure? Yes, let's do it. And then they would have to do the cut and they would have to like bind it and they would have to save the, put the cut in like an envelope on a wall. So every single cut was so laborious. But then when the avid came along, it was like, boom. Boom, you can do it all. You can you can do 20 times the amount of work in one day. And with comedy, as you know, it's all about timing. So the second people started like playing movies in front of crowds and they had the avid, you're like, oh, just shift this, move this. And all of a sudden the comedy started like rolling. Like they just got more. That's really assaulted. interesting. Yeah. Well, the, so the stuff and all the people that have worked with you, you talked about it. You loved keeping the cameras rolling, ad lib. Take, forget about the thing we wrote, just do your own take. And so you couldn't have really done that as well in the nineties. Well, I mean, you could, you could keep rolling, you could roll out, but the trick would would just be be harder to edit. Exactly. You have all these like loose ends that you would have to go through and be like, like physically, you'd have to say like, hand me that, that chunk of film over there. Let's look at it. So your editor would basically have to have a major cocaine problem just to have gotten through that. In Which the I think all the Which editors anyway, of the so 70s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I heard a story. We had an assistant editor on a couple of our movies, uh, Melissa Bretherton, and she worked on um, Heaven's Gate. Is that what it was called? The, oh, the uh, famous flap. Yeah. Yeah. And There's uh, a book Ma- about it. Michael Cimino. Yeah. And they were really struggling, obviously. And Cimino walked in one day and he said, take one frame out of every shot in the movie. And they were like, excuse me, take one frame out of every shot. So they had to go through the entire movie and cut one frame. And in the end, it cut like, you know, 45 seconds out of them. It made no difference at all. So they had little envelopes everywhere with like the one frame in it all over the office. But but yeah, that's my theory is the Avid is kind of what- That's a really good theory. Yeah. I also think, I think it's a lot like the NBA with comedy where sometimes it's just cyclical. Like right now in the NBA, we just have a lot of talent. For whatever reason, there's a lot of great guys right now. And that makes the league better and it makes it more fun. Yeah. And 
comedy sometimes is like that too, where you just have these classes that show up and not just the people in front of the camera, but the people behind the camera too. And I when agree. you have that blend of that, you can yeah. just roll off this eight year run. Well, I also think there was a thing where it was like the last moment of that kind of, you know, bro guy comedy. Like yeah. it was the last breath of it. And, and what was great about it was it was self-aware. Yeah. That we knew what we were doing. We knew that it was ridiculous. So you had the mix of like the avid, you had the mix of like movies blowing up because now you had DVDs and like the money was rolling. Yeah. And, and then I think you're right. I think like culturally that was a last moment. I mean, watch Animal House now. I don't think you can. Like, I mean, you watch Animal House now. It is. It's it's got like five or six really really tough moments. It's dicey. I mean, it's uh, and for a while that was the number one comedy of all time. I mean, that was like huge. So not only was it the number one comedy of all time, but that and Caddyshack were probably the two most quoted movies just in conversations. Without, I remember just throwing without, yeah Caddyshack no quotes left and Stripes right. Stripes would throw in there. Stripes yeah, was another yeah. one. Yeah. What that was, was a weird era though because like nudity was a character in comedies too. Yep. And it would always be like. Get some laughs and you get get a couple nude scenes in. And that's like my night out in 1981, you know? Stripes has like nudity for no reason at all. They're just throwing it in. Caddyshack too. Well, that was back too when you could have a movie that was like PG with nudity. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Airplane. Yeah. Airplane had the, 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 Cabin's going nuts, and this girl just jumps in front of the camera and yes. naked is jumping up and down. No but reason. Lack of avid makes airplane even more amazing if you really yeah. look at it. Like, how do you make that movie without an avid? It's weird that culturally that one didn't last, but some of the other ones did. Like, I feel like Caddyshack has really lasted. I um, watched it with. I don't my, feel like uh, airplane has. No, it hasn't. I and, but I feel like in the, when you were growing, we're around the same age growing up. There was like the Mount Rushmore and those were both on it. Definitive. Yeah. 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 I saw it like six times in a movie theater. Yeah. Tried to watch it with my uh, daughters and like every joke didn't make sense. It was like Hari Krishna's uh, telephone booth. <laughs> like everything no longer made sense. And they yeah. were like, why is that? And then I just had to like fast forward to, you know, uh, Mrs. Cleaver going, excuse me, I speak jive. And then they were into it. And then the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar stuff held up pretty well. The, yeah. Well, and also the the- the, the the pilot, Peter Graves. Oh, Billy? The best. You ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> now, that guy would probably get in trouble now. It's like, oh, they're child molestation. This is a serious oh, yeah. issue. But back then, that was hilarious. You like gladiator movies, <laughs> Billy? Yeah. You like when Scraps rubs up and down your leg? <laughs> I love that stuff. Uh, yeah, that was a different era. And I think comedy represents whatever is going on in the era. And mm-hmm. I'll be really interested to see where it goes this era. Because um, going forward, I you know especially with the political situation we have and all that stuff. Like I'm just really curious, what are people going to tackle? Who are the stars going to be? What are the stars going to want to tackle? Are they going to go after the politics at all? And all that stuff. I have no idea. I mean, the funniest thing I've seen in the last year wasn't written comedy. It was Donald Trump in that forest with Gavin Newsom and Jerry Brown explaining how you won't have forest fires if you sweep the forest. (laughs) It's the single craziest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Like if that happened in being there, you'd be like, guys, we got to get that out of there. Yeah, tone that back. Yeah. Nobody's going to believe this. And that actually happened. Like, so I don't know, man. I don't know what comedy does. Well, it's been tough for SNL, right? Because 
and I, I don't know where you're standing on all the Trump stuff, but I feel like I, I, I'm just kind of bored of it. It's, it's like, all right, we get it. Al Baldwin's Trump. Yeah. Um, this is something that started when you were there where they would have kind of the, the political thing would open the show, which they used to do the first 25 years of the show every once in a while. But sometimes they would open the show with like weird stuff or cast member stuff. Or the Wolverines. Bit. Yeah, or yeah, just yeah. something weird, like whatever. But now it's like politics every time. And to start out with Trump and it's like, how do you parody something that feels already like a parody? I have no idea. It's yeah. a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, when I was there, I like occasionally I would try and write openings that were like a little bit serious. Yeah. Like I wrote one, it was like for the season opener after the Lewinsky scandal. Yeah. And the entire scene was silent. And it was Hillary Clinton walking in the bedroom, Bill's watching TV, and he's like, hey. And that was the only word in the whole scene. She ignores him, sits in the bed. They start flipping through channels. Every third channel is Lewinsky. Yeah. They flip, flip, flip. She turns it off, takes like a big heavy breath, turns over, turns off the light, long beat. Bill turns off his light, long beat, big heavy breath, live from New York on Saturday night. <laughs> and boy, did it not work. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, I don't remember that. Did they, did they not Never run aired. it? Never oh, aired. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I convinced Lauren. I was like, this will be amazing. This will be it was like, nope. Yeah, cut immediately. That stuff, when did you, what was your first year there? I was 95 through, I think, 01. Because you go back now. I mean, that was such a great run for the show and all new cast, basically, and um, just some Hall of Famers in there and all that stuff. But it was also a really fun time for comedy where you look at some of the stuff, like those Smigel cartoons now. Oh, None of that stuff would run now. No way. Um, no way. Yeah. And especially like going after partners and going after, the, going after the network and oh, yeah. some of the stuff shitty. And I was like, Holy, even in the moment, it's like, Oh my God, I can't believe they're running that. I was, I, I did a, a interview about an hour ago with a journalist talking about you whore. That. You were somebody else <laughs> with a, a journalist about that piece going after the network about the, Oh it yeah. A, classic. It was a mediopoly. And it was like a schoolhouse rock piece yeah. about how the networks own the news. So they're never going to report against themselves. Yes. And I co-wrote it with Smigel and we had GE in there saying like, you know, they own NBC. They're never going to like report against building weapons or building stuff. And so we, God bless Lauren, he aired it. But I guess the next morning, the head of NBC, I can't remember who it was back then, Bob Wright, I think. Probably called, still Bob Wright, yeah. Called Lauren and was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and so a friend of mine in the control room called me and goes, hey, McKay, they're pulling that piece, that Mediopoly. Oh, for the reruns? Yeah, for the reruns. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, they're trying not to let anyone know, but they're pulling it. And so I guess I can say it now. I leaked it. <laughs> <laughs> I That's called, amazing. I called David Korn, who was a, a journalist, still a journalist, big journalist, uh, a local TV guy, like three people, and they put articles about it. And then five days later, I came into work and everyone was looking at me weird. And I was like, what's up? And they're like, Lauren wants to see you. Oh, no. And I was like, really? About what? Lauren wants to see you. And I went in the room and Lauren was like, did you leak that? The fact that we were cutting the Mediopoly piece, Adam. And I was like, I, at this moment, I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Why do you think that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, NBC wants me to fire the person that did that. 
And I know it's you. And I was like, no. And to Lauren's credit, gave a little half wink and was like, don't do that again. And like, let me go out of the office. And that was it. Well, you were, you were too important to the show. He wasn't going to fire you. I don't know. I mean, if NBC, I mean, he needed me, but NBC would have fired me. Yeah. I, I mean, this shouldn't come as a surprise, but I remember when I got suspended at, for me as Panford going after Goodell, uh, two of the people who reached out to me were you and Smigel. <laughs> Both super excited about it. <laughs> this is great. We're so proud of you. <laughs> we were though. We were genuinely proud of you. <laughs> like, can we say it now on this? Can I say Goodell's the, biggest moron creep ever well and he's second biggest who's first i don't know the trump the pope oh, <laughs> trump. oh. <laughs> no no the pope is fine the pope is well actually he's, he's not nice. um i don't know goodell's pretty bad <laughs> i feel like they all live in the same category like james dolan um, yeah. Uh, who's the guy who owns the uh, Washington football team? Oh, Snyder. Snyder. <laughs> yeah. Like they're all in that same. Jerry category. Richardson, the the Carolina oh, owner. He's the best. Another good one. Oh, that statue. I want to. I want to buy that statue. By the way, of him outside that the Panthers. They didn't take it down yet, right? No, he actually put it in the agreement when he sold the team. You can't remove this. That it's is true. amazing that people haven't fucked with it though. You think at three in the morning. You have a weird statue out in front of your place. I mean, it's not as bad as the Richardson Which statue? one, but the statue of you. Shut up. <laughs> People don't believe that. <laughs> statue of you holding up like, what would you hold up? A microphone and a I don't know, probably, Celtics jersey? Probably me and, me and a typewriter just looking sad that my comm's not done yet. Um, yeah, that... that uh, those are crazy times. The the late nineties. And you had you guys were loaded on the show behind the scenes and on camera. And oh, um we had and fun. then everything led to that two thousand. The election. We had so much fun. so much fodder. I still feel like that the political parody at that point was still fun because they didn't have the kind of uh, destructive elements it had the world has now. Yeah, you didn't know in the early 2000s that it was like potentially the end of mankind's existence. Right. No, but there was an innocence. Yeah. Like I was watching Dave, which I think we're going to do for the rewatchables with Kevin Klein. And there's Does like that a hold up. Oh yeah, really? and there's a real innocence to it. Where it's like, yeah, the presidency is oh, this easy. Okay. All and right. he can just come in and make everything better and huh. that's kind of how we felt about the presidency a little bit. And now uh, I don't think we do. Uh, changing subjects for one second. Have you yeah. done uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy as a rewatchable? No. It's amazing. I've that seen, may, when I give it, you a podcast of your rewatchables, eight you get times I've watched that movie. That Oldman? movie is so good. All right, back to what we were uh, talking about. Uh, presidency was innocent. Yeah, I mean, we knew W. Bush was messed up. We knew there was trouble ahead. But you knew he was a good character for the show. Oh, in hell 2000. Yeah. Hell yeah. Texas but, guy, he could pretend he was dumb. It's like the perfect. Oh, but you didn't know he would like you'd rock, feral. rock the foundations of like civilization. Yeah. Like you weren't thinking that. By the end, of course, they did. But yeah. in the beginning, you didn't think of it. Yeah. No, it was a blast. Like the late 90s. I remember when we got there in 95, we would like gallivant around New York City. 
we go down to like the East Village, it'd be Farrell and myself and like a couple of the writers on a gas tire would join us and we'd just go be idiots. And at that time, everyone like hated SNL because it was coming off the- uh, It was the Jay Moore season. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so we would go to bars and I remember like one bar 2A on uh, Avenue A and 2nd Street. We were there and we we're just being morons. Like I think we're lifting Farrell up and pressing him against the ceiling or something. And the bartender was like, wish you guys were this funny on SNL. <laughs> People hated the show, but it was kind of great because no one cared who we were. Like no one, they didn't really recognize Farrell and, uh, so we were just like eating pierogies and uh, having the best time shooting pool. And it was incredible. I remember, uh, I remember the first episode of him when he did get off the shed. Oh yeah. And it was like one of those, who's this guy? He was, he was just almost immediately a star. And then he was in another sketch with Meryl Hemingway. I talked when he was on, I talked to him about this. He had the, the one where he's the weird husband who needs excuses to get off the phone. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And it was just so clear he was a star, but then it just took, it took America like it seemed like half the year to catch up with Did it. Did I tell you the story when he got hired? We all thought he was like the straight man. We thought like, because we were all hanging out. We're all doing bits. We're Chicago guys. So we're yeah. like improv. It was like Dave Keckner, Nancy Walls, Tim Meadow. All of us are just doing bits constantly. Yeah. And Farrell's really quiet and kind of normal. So in our head, we're like, oh, he must be like the Brad Hall of this cast. Right. Like, so we just didn't pay Glue him any guy. mind. Yeah. And we're like, so we go to the read-through, the very first read-through. And of course, our sketch is like bomb. And then Farrell just rips it. Like nine sketches, the room is rocking. And we're like, oh, he's not the, by the way, God bless Brad Hall, but he's not the Brad Hall of this cast. Yeah, yeah. And then from that moment on, it was like, follow Farrell. It was incredible. We did, uh, when we were at Grantland, we did like a Saturday Night Live I forget. Maybe it was for the fortieth. Was it the fortieth? It I just I was. Right? This, yeah, actually, we did a bracket of the character. We did a whole bunch of stuff, and I always thought him and Eddie were the were the two best, just because I actually thought Eddie was kind of overqualified to be on the show. Like he yeah, was the only person true. who's ever been on who was like too famous almost yeah. to be on it. And then Pharaoh, his ability to do anything, and then Phil Hartman was my other one. Like and, just, and then I, I think. This decade, I think Kate McKinnon and Kristen Wiig are close, but those three, you, they could just Ackroyd literally too. do anything. I would, I would throw Ackroyd in there. Like, you forget how good he was. Uh, Drew Goddard, do you know him? Yeah. Uh, Cabin in the Woods. He does a game where you do an SNL draft. And oh, you wow. each have to draft. You have to have him on, by the way. He's an amazing guy. Yeah. Um, and first pick, he says, every draft is either Farrell, Eddie Murphy. Like Has those to be. two. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty high on um, Mike Myers. I thought Mike Myers was underrated on that well, show. Well, he's now historically the underrated cast member. Yeah. The, those first couple of years. Oh, my God. I like, was in college for those. And uh, it was just so far out there. The like fucking sprat the first sprockets. It was like, what is this? Blew my mind. What is happening? Or the kid in the bathtub. You yeah, know, my name is Simon or yeah. whatever. Like everything he did, you were into. You were like, what's he up to? And, and also, the music was incredible back then. Like, do you remember like Public Enemy oh being God. on there with Flavor Flav with the witch hat and like Can't Trust It and like. I just remember that. I think that's the best cast. I think that like early nineties SNL. Is I like agree the, with you. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there was a window where. I think Myers had joined, but Carvey hadn't left yet, but Hartman was still on yep. and Jane Hooks was there. And then 
And There's one season Carly. where it's just loaded. And Carly Farley's was there. a monster Carly was on that a monster. show. He hosted when I was there, and I have never seen anyone rip a room like that guy. Like, he rocked the studio. Like, uh, I think he had health issues when he left. He did. Yeah, I think that's what stopped him from being... Because that guy was incredible. Yeah. He was amazing. Yeah. I think he's on... If Lauren would never do this, but if he gave a short list, I think he would... Probably would make it. it, yeah. Out of the cast members, did you always want to be on SNL, or did you stumble into it? Yeah, I always wanted to be on it. I mean, it was a show I grew up watching, and the uh, Chicago lineage is pretty 100%. deep. Too. Well, I mean, really, what happened to me was we were doing the Upright Citizens Brigade, so we were doing shows in like coffee houses and weird theaters, and it was going great. Like we definitely had a following, but we made no money, and yeah. I was broke. And they had auditions at Second City. So I had to tell like UCB, I was like, guys, I have no money. Like, I got to do this. And that was the only place in town that paid. So I got in there and that's kind of what changed everything. And those guys just kept doing UCB. And the cool thing was by the time I got to SNL, like a year later, UCB moved there. So um, I was able to do improv with them. And But yeah, that was it. I mean, that was always the thing. I mean, that was the first time in my life, like my parents stopped bothering me. (laughs) Like what's (laughs) what's happening? What's going to happen with you? Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. The, I remember there's a few that you were on. You were the guy in the guy in the crowd. You, you had like kind of a stealth character. I did. I did. I did it a couple times. I'm trying to remember. It was a, it was more than a cut. Wasn't it like four or five times? Toby McGuire. There were a couple. I you were like the annoying guy in the audience. Yeah, basically. basically that was it. Yeah. And a couple times in sketches, I was in a couple of my short films. I did like an update piece one time, like a little bit of performance. But by that time, I was loving it. I was loving being a writer, the behind the starting scenes directing, stuff. making short films. Like that was clearly where I was going. When did you click with Farrell? What was the, was there a tipping point moment? He- Because you so, kind of became his guy. Yeah, we all, uh, the Chicago group just always was doing bits. Like day-to-day, in and out, we're always doing a bit. And Farrell just started like hanging out in front of our doorway. Like, hey guys, what's up? Yeah. And we're like, hey, what's up? And then eventually he came into our office and started doing bits with us. And we were like, oh, this guy's good. Yeah. And later he told me, he was like, I wanted to hang out with you guys because you're always doing bits. (laughs) And he became one of the masters, of course. And from that point on, then it was like when I was writing a sketch or he was writing one, he'd be like, hey, McKay. But the first one I think we ever hit it on was Neil Diamond's Storytellers. Yes. I think that was the first one we ever wrote together. And it was so easy and breezy that we're like, let's keep doing this. Uh, He's not an overthinker. I'm not an over, like, you know, you want to correct it and make it work, but neither one of us are kind of hand ringers when it comes to stuff. So um, it was just really natural and comfortable. Did you become head writer there? You did, right? I did my second year. I remember being in, in shock when they called me in. Like I was a staff writer for one year and they're like, hey- uh, Adam, we'd like you to be head writer. And I think my first response was no. <laughs> Jesus. I was having so much fun just being a staff writer. And then a friend of mine was like, no, you you got to say yes. If you don't say yes, you'll never get a pay upgrade. A uh, little pay upgrade. A lot more hassle. Better office? Yep. Better office. Got a bigger office, uh, but a lot more hassle. Run some meetings. Run some Deal with some egos, all stuff you have to do when you make movies yeah. years later. Three secretaries, a uh, helicopter. <laughs> no. Yeah. I'm allowed to carry a gun in airports. That's great. Like, yeah. That sounds awesome. It was good. It was good times. 
When did you know you wanted to start making movies? It was after four years. I was head writer and like, you know, kind of had some ups and downs and was like always kind of arguing with Lauren. I knew there was a problem when one time I said, hey, I want to talk to Lauren. I went in the room and there was another producer there. And I was like, I, I just want to talk to Lauren. No, it's all right. He could stay. And we talked and talked. And then I left and I said to the producer, like, why were you there? And he's like, you know, Lauren's afraid you're going to yell at him. <laughs> oh, man. I, by the way, I wasn't yelling. It was just being effusive. Like, we got to do this. Why don't we do this? And uh, so I was getting kind of like itchy and like ready to move on. What so, would you battle with him about? Just out of curiosity. Because at that point he was becoming the establishment. Yeah, it was a lot of it was sketch choices. Like after dress, why are we doing this? Like, come on, this isn't funny. What about this? Like a lot of it was that. And then it would be during the week, I would try and institute kind of like frame framing devices for the show. Like, hey, let's have a topical minute after, before update. It seems to work. Like, and we would just constantly be talking about stuff. Uh, and he was very resistant to changing the infrastructure that had been built. Exactly. And by the way, now that I'm 50, he should have been because he created one of the great shows of all time. Right. And there's Seth a Myers talks about this. He created, he basically created this plane that could fly in any weather. Yeah. And just, you knew the plane could go up or go down and it worked. And 29 year olds are coming in going, you got to change it. And yeah. uh, so now I look back at it very differently, but it, at that time I thought like, oh, yeah, we got to go crazy. And so eventually I was like, I'm going to quit. And uh, so I called my manager. I was like, All right, I think it's time to leave. And he goes, you know, if you're going to leave, make an unreasonable demand. You might as well. Right. He goes, what would it take for you to stay? And I said, well, be a pay raise, no production meetings. I can name my own credit and I want to make short films. Let's try it. And then like hour later, it's like, yeah, he'll do it. And so for my last two years at SNL, I was the coordinator of falconry. That was my title. <laughs> And get the fuck out of here. I'm not kidding. The coordinator of Falconry? Yeah, they said, name your own credit. I'm like, all right, the coordinator of Falconry. <laughs> and, uh, and I made short films, which was amazing. I learned how to direct. Yeah. And I could still write sketches. And I, I didn't have to go to any meetings. But after two years of that, I realized the entire place hated me. because I was. So you're telling me this, and I was going to say, like, this sounds bad politically for you. Really bad. Yeah. Really bad. Like, even dear friends were like, I hate you. Like, <laughs> so eventually I left, but, uh, but yeah, I had a great time there. Six years. It was amazing. He's Lauren lets writers produce sketches, put them together, give notes to actors. Like you get an incredible experience there. He, it seems like part of the secret to his success is he realizes, and I don't know what, what year he realized this, but it was probably somewhere in the late nineties, early two thousands that he just got old and that he has to trust these really smart people to kind of tell him what's funny and what's current and what's new. And some of that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, cause I find I'm in that situation a little bit with like what we've had at the Grail and the ringer. Like I'm fucking old. Like we have a lot of young people that work for us and yeah. the stuff they care about, I wouldn't care about. And if it was a site that was all the stuff that a 49 year old person cared about, it probably wouldn't be a good site, <laughs> you know? So you need that influx. And I think he, I don't know what year it was where he embraced that. Um, he was pretty good with that. Like when we came out here to Los Angeles, our favorite uh, executives were the ones who would say, I don't know comedy. 
I'll tell you story, but you guys do the comedy. And like Amy Pascal at Sony was like that. She's like, I don't know comedy guys, but I'll tell you stories. Yeah. You know, I'll talk to you about that. But I know you guys are good and I'll run interference for you. Amazing run there. But whenever it's the executive who's like, I do know funny. Uh Oh, dangerous. Be careful. Uh, Lauren was pretty good with that. I got to say, I think the key to that show is the read through. Wednesday is the read through. And there's like 120 people just packed in there. And you go through every sketch and a lot of it's based on the room laughing. And I think he reads that. And I think he does still have a good sense of humor. I mean, he still will laugh. You can get him to laugh. He does a snort laugh, which is the best. Right. The one time I really got him to laugh was I did a sketch called uh, the Hulk Hogan talk show. And it was this incredibly long intro that was all about Hulk Hogan. And to the point where people in the room were like, all right, we get it already. And then it would cut to the show. And it was Will Ferrell going, Hulk Hogan is on vacation. I'm your guest host, Ted Beeman. And Lauren actually did a, I was like, oh, that's good. And uh, so to his credit, he was still laughing. He still enjoyed it. But yeah, he was good at, at kind of leaning on people like Tina became that for him and Seth Meyers and certain people. People he trusted. Well, it seems like he, I mean, his, his ability to judge who's talented and who's creative is unassailable. I, I don't, I don't think anybody has a better shit detector. They even like him fighting for Conan to be a TV host. Amazing. It's kind of incredible. Amazing. I like, mean, can who, you imagine if that happened now? There's no fucking way that would work. I mean, list of talent evaluators in all time history. Yeah, if he was, like, like if he was a sports GM, he would just Jerry West. Yeah, he'd be like Belichick cross with Jerry West. Yeah, yeah, he's incredible. He'd crank it out. I asked him about that once. I was like, "How do you do this?" Because the people he's hiring are not. There's no one knocking on their door. Yeah, like, no one was looking to hire me. No one wanted Will Ferrell, Kristen Wiig. Like none of us were being bothered by anyone. And he told me, as you know, the story always goes back to some fabulous scenario. He's like, I was in Spain with fill in name of supermodel yeah. intellectual. And we were driving across these fields and there were uh, melons everywhere. Just as far as the eye could see, there were watermelons. And in the middle of it, there was a stand and there was a man selling watermelons. And I said, uh, I laughed and I said, why are you selling watermelons? They're all around us. And he pointed and he said, because of my eye. <laughs> wow. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was a good story. Yeah, yeah. He appreciates people who are just good at stuff. Yeah, yeah. I remember I went to visit my friend Jacoby in New York, and he's like, we're going to go get soup at this place, and you're going to be freaked out by how great the cash register lady is. Because <laughs> he knows that I love stuff like this. I love when people are just great at their the job, whether it's the like best. a bartender or a waiter. And he's like, I can't wait to show you this cash register lady. So we go in and we buy the soups. And the line's like 12 deep and it's just moving. And she's like bagging stuff. Like one hand's bagging stuff. The other thing's in. And I was like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. I almost wanted to videotape it. And I was like, should I tape this? She's like, no, no, she'll get freaked out. Like he'd already (laughs) thought of that. And and we watched her do And she banged out like 12 customers in like 70 seconds or 80 seconds or something. I was like, that honestly, that you, you undersold how great that was. There's a maitre d' here in Los Angeles. Have you ever heard of him? His name's uh, Dimitri and he works at the tower bar and it's incredible. I mean, he's like, He's it's it's art. Just he knows everyone's name, whatever's going. Mr. McKay, how are yeah, you? Please, how have you been? I haven't seen him in four years. Whatever you have to go there once 
meet Dimitri. In fact, tell him Adam McKay said I have to meet. <laughs> well, he's getting blown up on the podcast though. Yeah, he is. Dimitri, he is. he's incredible. The uh, the where the show is now. I, my biggest complaint would be the 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 celeb cameos and playing stuff for the audience reaction of like. Oh my God, it's Ben Stiller. Oh, oh, it's this guy. It's like, I just wish they, I don't understand who that's for. I just don't know what I would do. I just always play the game of, all right, now I'm head writer. What would I do? Like in this time, I just don't know what I would do. Like tough, man. Well, that's, maybe that's why you do more of those celeb cameos. Exactly. Like stringing out the show. Yeah. I think the video things open up stuff and to his credit, like, the the Sandberg when those guys came in the Lonely Island amazing. guys yeah and that was something like you never wanted to take the show out of the studio you never want to take the audience you always you know even yeah. if you're gonna do the short stuff but now this was like becoming one of the focal points of the show stuff that wasn't even I feel like now it's at like the taping half, right? and it really does yeah. feel like it's half and it does work really well this episode is brought to you by Seven Eleven cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small Slurpee drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms, all rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. What was your, I can't remember. First one I ever did at uh, SNL was the- No, no, the first after. Oh, oh, uh, Anchorman. So that was the first one. Oh, yeah, yeah. You'd never done a movie before that. No, I'd done short films, but I'd Yeah, but not not like a major where you were in charge of everything. Did you barely make it or did it go swimmingly or what happened? We had a blast. We laughed. Like Seems like it was great. Morons the entire time. The only thing that was kind of the speed bump was the first test screening. We showed it to like everyone. Like Katzenberg was there, all of DreamWorks, everything. It was packed house, Westwood. The movie plays huge laughs. After the screening, everyone's coming up like Katzenberg. I don't think Spielberg was there yet, but but they were all there shaking my hand going, oh my God, you have made one of the funniest movies. And they came out with the scores. And you know the scores, zero yeah, yeah. to 100. And what you always at least want to get is like a 65 or a 70. Like that's kind of respectable. Anything higher is great. And the woman reads the scores. She's like, yeah, you got a 50. And everyone just froze. 
And then the head of marketing walked up to me, uh, this woman, I think her name was Terry Press. And she said, you idiots, you killed the dog. And I was like, what do you mean? You killed his dog. And I go, yeah, but it looks so fake. Who cares? No, <laughs> you killed the dog. <laughs> Farrell and I were like, oh, of course. So we went and did reshoots and Baxter came back. That's when he pops out of the river. And we went and tested it right to a 75, like 25 points. That's fucking incredible. Yeah. <laughs> you never heard that one? No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it. That was it. And Baxter. Terry, Terry Press. Well, think if you had to cut out the whole where he dies and you lose the glass case glass case of emotion. and like, oh, It's that like devastating. Happen. That wouldn't happen. Yeah. But, uh, but we just did a lame when he blows the horn or whatever. You see Baxter come out of the river. And then it led to my personal favorite scene in the entire movie, which is Baxter talking to the bear. Cato Joe and I've known your pal. That is my single favorite moment in the entire movie because I can't believe we got away with it. Right. And, uh, and that was it. Yeah. 50 to a 75. That was crazy. But when the movie came out, it did well, but it, you had no idea what was going to happen. We were Because happy. it had this whole oh, second a, life. It that, was a crazy movie. I mean, there were a lot of people that hated it. Yeah. Like, and so it came out, I think it made like 90 million, 85. Which Damn. This is back in like 2002, 2003. We were plenty happy. I think like the reviews uh, were, you know, like 68, 66%, somewhere around there, which once again, we were delighted. And that was but, it. But you didn't know it was going to become this iconic comedy. Though. Oh, with, uh, no idea. So we all moved on with our life. Yeah. We, we got into Talladega Nights. We were working on that. Yeah, it enabled you to do all these other things. That and two things happened. One was my wife was driving around on Halloween and she called me and she's like, uh, honey, you should know I've seen seven people dressed as Ron Burgundy so far. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, listen to this. Ron Burgundy is like, hey, oh, you hear a voice in the distance, like stay classy. I'm like, that's weird. And then the second thing was you. You actually oh, wrote, the column? You wrote a giant piece about yeah. am I crazy or is this not the funniest movie ever. I remember that. And it was, 08, 09. I did awards from it. It was incredible. And, you know, people know. So that helped. So I always say it was like playing on cable and then your column. You were the very first person ever to go, there's something here. Yeah. I remember, I love the rewatchability of it. And, I, and it had so many quotes. I was like, this is perfect for my NBA awards gimmick. That was it. And yeah. I told, I told my editor, and I think I had one editor who was like, what? Anchor you're using Anchorman quotes? And then the other one was like, Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, this is perfect. This is exactly where I want to be. And uh, but I honestly that because I had always done like big ass movies with the quotes. Like I had always done like Godfather and That's Top right. Gun. Like yeah. they, but this was the first one that I kind of rolled the dice with. I was like, I just feel this is pre-Twitter too. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I just feel like. They, there has to be more than me. Way earlier it was like, than 08. I'm going to say it was 08. I, I, oh, no. I think it was like 03, 04. Because the movie came out in like 02, 03, right? And you were the first person to like talk about it. Because it seemed like it had, it, I don't know what channel it was on, but it was on for like two straight years. Yeah, I don't know if it was HBO <laughs> or something. Or like, and then it was TBS or something, but it, it was on constantly, which is the best. It was just over. All right, here it is. We're going to find out the year, which was. I'm going to say, oh. I can't even. I can't two. read on my phone. I'm going to say, oh. It came out of four. God, you wrong. made so many movies, you can't even remember. That's, I was definitely I was way wrong. Like four years after because. 
It felt like so. it had a kick to it. I don't think so, man. I think you were like two years after. It was yeah. soon. Maybe, maybe it was By the way, two. I'm probably wrong because I don't even know the release date of my own movie. <laughs> but the best was Step Brothers. Because Step Brothers, we did kind of get bombed with our our reviews. Like we, I think we got crappy reviews. Yeah. And we didn't care because we loved the movie and made a little bit of money. And Farrell and I were just like, oh, well, that was a blast. And like six months later, I'm walking down a street in New York City and I hear two guys walk by me and one guy's going, have you seen that Step Brothers? No, no, you got to watch it. It's hilarious. And then like two hours later, I hear someone go, you know, this house is a fucking prison. And then like three hours later, I hear like, we are a house of learned doctors. And I'm like, what is going on? And then that one took off. Uh, but that one really surprised us. We didn't see that one coming. The stepbrothers. Oh, oh, not at all. I yeah. got to say, I didn't realize it for like seven years. And that I do this for a living and I'm supposed to know what people, but that one, it seemed like Kyle's generation and younger, that kind of became their movie. Well, and that, that they was, drove it. And then the adults were kind of like, oh, I'll give it a second whirl. And totally. then it just took off. That was always our favorite. Like Will yeah. and I, that was the one that made us laugh the hardest. Even though really? we, love, yeah, we love Anchorman. We love Tyler. We love them all. But as far as just raw, like I would go home after shooting that movie for the day and I would be like, my muscles would be sore from laughing. <laughs> like that's all we did. All We didn't give a shit. We were just like, the conversation I had with Will beforehand, I was like, you know, Will, we have like a fart joke in this. These are like grown men living with, we're not going to get good reviews. And there's even a chance the box office isn't great. Are you okay with that? And Farrell's like, yeah. And I was like, so am I. <laughs> it just went ahead. Yeah. Well, wasn't it, uh, it was you or him had the idea for the movie just from you thought it'd be funny if two grown men were in bunk beds. Yeah, that was it. And that was the entire premise. I was sitting around with Riley and Farrell. We had all these different ideas. And I go, guys, I just keep thinking of you guys in bunk beds. I don't know what that is. And to their it's credit. Something, there's something there. There's some meat on that bone. Yeah, that one had a long tail. I can't remember if you told me this or, or Farrell did, but you feel like Anchorman 2 in like 2020, there's gonna it's going to circle back. And have some sort of kick to it. We love that movie. We really it's love it. The problem is it's been on Epics for like three, four years. You I need think, to get it on a different channel. I think the middle 45, 50 minutes of that movie is as good as anything we've ever done. And the other problem is it's a sequel. You know? yeah. And just sequels, it's not as fresh. It doesn't crackle as much. But uh, I have a couple of friends who really love it. But we'll see. We'll see. You know, there's a couple sequels out there. I always thought uh, Wayne's World 2 was pretty good. I thought like of the sequels, Austin, Austin Powers 2 is pretty good. Like, I thought Austin Powers 2 is the best one of the three. Have you seen Wayne's, Wayne's World 2? Yeah, you know, it's first of bad. all, my my answer to this is always going to be yes, because this is what I do at one in the morning <laughs> as I watch, watch weird movies that I've already seen. It's funny. It's trapped in this pop culture era, that yeah, early that's 90s. That's true. Like there's a really significant portion of it's like basically parodied in the doors. Which had come yeah, out like two true. years earlier. It's true. But 30 years later, you would have no idea what, what the fuck is going on with the Indian guy. And that this is like a whole Jim Morrison part. And then Jim Morrison's in it. And that all like aside, My kids would be like, what? If I showed them my kids, they'd be like, what is going forget on? Forget everything you just said. It's still funny. It's stuff. pretty good. Yeah, it <laughs> it's is. pretty good. Well, you know why? Because Garth Algar was a comedic genius. Exactly. He is aged really nicely really well yeah. yeah he's been one of the good ones but that's it man as far as like comedy sequels that's a hard hard road to go but yeah we like anchorman too we really do 
Did you know that Paul Rudd was going to have the career he had? Because when he was on Anchorman, he hadn't really. No, I think he hadn't really kind of snowballed for him yet. Wet, Hot American Summer, I think, was one of his. Clueless. Clueless. We, the first time I ever met him, I just thought, oh, he's like some handsome guy actor. And then we had the Anchorman script. No one would make it. And I got a call out of nowhere. And it's like, hey, it's Paul Rudd. And I was like, I'd met him once. I was like, oh, hey, Paul. I'm reading this Anchorman script and it's the best thing I've ever read. Will you meet me for coffee? No one would make it. Everyone had said no. And I met Rudd for coffee and he was like, this is the funniest thing I've ever read. And I was like, man, I'm sorry. No one will make it. He's like, well, if they ever do, please, please consider me. And then it actually, here's what's crazy. For that role, it came down to Rudd and Bob Odenkirk were the two for Fantana. And Odenkirk was so funny. He was killing us. And it was one of those like almost coin flip things where we were like, God, we love Odenkirk. But Rudd, and then Rudd was like crazy funny. And ultimately we felt like Fantana had to be a bit of a playboy and Rudd had that side of it. So we went with him, but God damn, like Odenkirk like smoked that audition. He was so funny. Did you get to a point with the comedies where you just knew who you were going to bring in? was a certain type of person that would flourish in that whole kind of. We got good at kind of figuring out, like we love the dramatic actors who are also funny as shit. John yeah. C. Riley being the best of all time. And Catherine Hahn's another one. Like just these people that you know have chops, but when you hang out with them, Richard Jenkins is a great one too. Yeah. They just, there's no walls. They're not self-serious. They're like, and. Do you learn from the SNL, like the people that come on and host? Because sometimes there'd be great hosts that would be surprising, right? That's interesting. I never thought of that. Yeah, Julianne Moore was an amazing host. Steve Buscemi was an incredible host. Yeah. I remember Gwyneth Paltrow was really good. Were you there for that one? Uh, The first time I was there, I can't remember that show so well. And Uh, I'm always enjoy when somebody surprises me. Like Christina Aguilera was the host once and she did a Kim Cattrall impersonation. Are you serious? And I was like, God, this is amazing. But- it's always the fun when the host surprises. It's the best. With some sort oh, of, because usually. Really, oh, yeah. There's Ham a was another one. I, I didn't realize Ham was going to be a good host when he did it. And he, he was, was really good. as hell, man. That guy's yeah. great. Yeah. And you know, Ham and Adam Scott and all those guys are like friends together. There's a yeah. third one of them, too. Who do yeah. they? Rudd. Right. Rudd, Scott. Well, it's like Ham. a weird Midwest thing. Kansas City Fucking thing. Fucking yeah. weirdos. It's a little gross. Yeah. yeah. They talk about like the blues. St. Louis blues. Yeah. All right. All let's, let's move on. It's disgusting. The, uh. The George other Ray. thing that happened in um, to that, what was it? Funny or Die was 06, 07? I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. And you and Farrell just decide, hey, this <laughs> this internet video thing seems like there's something here. We should get in on this. We didn't even You have, got in like seven years early. <laughs> we didn't even have that thought. We were doing no interest in the internet. And this guy approached our manager and was like, Hey, I'm from Silicon Valley. My son loves stand up. Uh, let's do a comedy site. We were like, get out of, get lost. And uh, then we watched his son's stand up and he was actually funny, like really funny. And we were like, huh, well, that's interesting. And then our manager was like, look, they're going to give you the money. There's no loss. It's not your own money. Like you can just shoot sketches, put them up, see what happens. And then we kind of thought like, oh, this could be cool. Like Zach Galifianakis and Rudd and all our friends can do sketches. So I went over to Farrell's house when he was having like a birthday party for his son. And I brought Pearl and I was like, hey, she'll say anything I say to her. Let's try this. And a friend of mine was like a masseuse 
who had a camera and I was like, hey, Drew, come by and shoot this. And we did it in like 35 minutes. And we were like, all right, whatever. We weren't even laughing when we were doing it. We're like, that's great. And then Drew started cutting it. And he was like, guys, I, I think this is like the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? Send it to me. I was like, oh yeah, that's one of the funniest things I've ever yeah. seen. And uh, and they put it up and that was it. It was just immediate, like, you know, crash the servers, you know, millions and millions of hits. It was nuts. How, how hard was it to try to be one of the people running a company like that while you're also trying to do this whole movie awful, career? Awful. It seemed it like a, you, you were a little overwhelmed there for a couple of years. Six months, I think it was, where it was just me and Chris Henchy, who works for Sanchez. And the two of us were basically running the company. There was no one else. And then eventually we hired people and got people in. How many so people I, did you get up to? Man, I think at the peak, it was like 130, 140 oh my God. people. It was huge, man. It was big, big company. We had a place like up north. We had like office in New York. I mean, it was gigantic. And then boom, just like that. It was like YouTube and uh, uh, Facebook just dried everything up. And so it's still around. It's still got a bunch of TV shows, still puts videos up. It's hanging in there. But yeah. it's, but man, the YouTube and uh, Facebook just changed everything. Is there, did you have a moment with the whole thing where you're like, man, I wish we had done that differently and then this would have happened? Actually, no, because yeah. I don't think there was anything we could have done yeah. other than maybe sell quicker. But that was never kind of the vibe of it. The vibe yeah. of it was always like, let's have fun. Let's do cool stuff. Um and then by the time like Facebook and uh, YouTube like cornered us and just like shriveled everyone up, like Buzzfeed, everyone just went away. It's almost like Facebook. They're like villains almost. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like they're subverting democracy. It's almost like they're <laughs> bad people. Wait a second. Oh, God, I got rid of my Facebook page and it has been the best. I'm so close. I, You know, they own Dude, Instagram though and I love Instagram. So well, it's like, do Instagram. I have to get rid of Instagram? Yeah, keep but they're, they're, they're Facebook owns Instagram. Yeah, but it's not the amount of information that Facebook has. Instagram's just a picture and a comment. Like Facebook's got like your corporate LLC Facebook, number. And, and they've sold everything. They, oh. Every every move I've ever made on the internet, oh, Facebook's yeah. probably sold to somebody. They could definitely clone you at this point. Yeah. I've um, noticed from the ads, because it's all, the the ads that are in my feed are all things that are clearly somebody's just studied all my behavior. So it'd be like, <laughs> hey, buy this soccer, this soccer ball for your daughter that has a chip in it. <laughs> put, put your credit card down. It's like, how do you know that I would even? And meanwhile, I'm looking at the soccer ball like, oh, that is pretty cool. Wait, so I can track it to my computer? All it ever advertises so for me, any of those analytics is always like suit jackets. That's it. <laughs> suit jackets. Because I'm so big, I can never find clothes that fit me yeah so it was like big suit jackets um the other crazy thing that happened with you was you name your production company gary sanchez productions which you think is this <laughs> hilarious name and then the guy of the yankees named gary sanchez makes the yankees and he's pretty good and for he's a little good while. Yeah. and he's in the playoffs every year and that was your production company and the how what are the odds of that the funny thing was our lawyer told us that like hey you guys should be careful there could be a gary so we're like what are you talking about come on just do it and how did you come up with the name Gary? You just thought it was funny that it was, it was a Gary fake and Sanchez name that uh, Farrell was using at hotels. So I would call him and be like, Gary Sanchez, please. And <laughs> and then we just started laughing. I'm like, where did you get the name Gary Sanchez? He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, maybe that's the name of our company. And that was it. Yeah. It's a great name for a company. And then Unfortunately, we came up, it's now the name of a Yankee starting catcher. Uh, starting catcher. We came up with the whole idea of like creating the mythology around him, that he was a place kicker 
for the Vikings and the Chiefs. He's from Paraguay. Oh yeah, I would have believed that. And he so, was the last barefoot kicker. Exactly. And I didn't. Did I ever tell you this? I did no. an interview with a Hollywood reporter, and this was right after the company opened. And they're like, well, so who is Gary Sanchez? And I'm like, well, Gary is a kicker in the NFL for 14 years. He was with the Buccaneers and the Vikings, uh, made a lot of money, but now he lives in Paraguay. Um, he's sort of an entrepreneur, um, does a lot of different things. Oh, interesting. And I, I thought the guy knew I was kidding. And then the next day, there's a big article in Hollywood Reporter, Gary Sanchez from Paraguay. And oh my God. they have to call him and tell him, like, that's not true. And for like, Two years, Hollywood Reporter like hated us. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. yeah, that is like a cardinal sin. It was bad. Yeah. That's still funny, though. It was pretty good. So that was in print in the magazine? Oh, yeah. And we actually hired an actor to play Gary Sanchez. So there's like pictures of us with him. And yeah, it went pretty far. <laughs> when, uh, when did you know you wanted to make a drama? You know, I was never thinking drama. I was always just thinking- Or like a more serious movie. Different. Because I was chasing a superhero movie for a while, this book called The Boys Hmm. uh, by Garth Innes that's kind of a rated R superhero thing. And I really wanted to make that and I couldn't get it made. And so I think we had come off like Anchorman 2 and my agent was like, you know, you've had a pretty good run, man. You haven't really missed on anything yeah. You could probably try something crazy right now. What would you want to do? And I had read The Big Short a year before, and I was like, I read this book and wondered, why isn't anyone making it? And I was like, well, funny you should ask. And it turned out the script was stalled, and they were happy to have me come in. And I think they were kind of humoring me a little bit. It was over at Paramount. But then, like, I wrote that script that basically was the movie, and they were like, this is kind of cool. But still, even then, they were like, well, we don't know about casting. And then we sent it around in one week. We got yeses from like Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt. And they were like, I guess we're making it. So it was Jesus. never seeking out anything that was, and, and even The Big Short has a lot of funny stuff right. in it. Yeah. But it was just so cool that my favorite thing about it was that when you would tour around with the movie, you actually got to talk about stuff. And like, I would debate economists and I spoke at the Brookings Institute and like, I was like, this is cool. Like, um, so yeah, it was really fun. And then hearing people like who really didn't know how the banking crisis worked, go, you know, come up to me and say, Hey, that was amazing. I didn't know about that. And, uh, and also it was so much more relaxed than comedies too. It was like, felt very European. We were in like New Orleans. We would end our days an hour early and just be like, I think that is sufficient. Like everything right. was just very laid back. So yeah, I loved it. And Did you feel it, weird about directing somebody like Christian Bale, who's one of the three or four best actors we have? He's one of the guys I was most nervous about. I had no problem like with that. How do you give somebody like that notes? I mean, Pitt. Ryan Gosling, Carell, no problem. They're all yeah. like guys you would hang on. But Bale, I was like, what do I do? And so I just talked to him beforehand. I said, look, like, you know, look, I like to yell notes out where I'll have a microphone. Is that okay with you? And he's like, yeah. And so I just checked with him on everything. I just said, is it okay if after four or five takes, I come over and talk to you here? And he was like, yeah. And then by the end of the movie, we were like, this guy's the greatest guy ever. And then I finally got up the nerve to do a bit with him. And it was like our second or third last day. There's this big moment where Michael Burry, the character he plays, writes on a chalkboard plus 1,290% for his fun. Like everyone's been wrong. He was the only one who was right. He lost everything plus 1,290%. And he walks away and it's dark in the office. It's a big, big moment. 
So we did it like five times and it was perfect. He was amazing. And I walked up to him and I was like, you know, it's good Christian, but I had one, ah, forget it. And of course he bites on it. He goes, uh, no, no, what? I'm like, what if you just kind of turned the camera and just kissed your fingers and did a peace sign, like peace out. And there was like a long pause and Christian's like, um, I don't know if that's really what my character would do. And I was like, I'm fucking with you. And he's like, oh, oh. <laughs> and then from that point on, all he did was bits with me. It turned out he loved it. Oh, that's hilarious. And, and on Vice too. Like he just bits all day long, joking around. He's like a goofball. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we feel like uh, the famous actors aren't normal people. Yeah. But they're all normal people. They all have to pee and take dumps and eat food. And it's not like they're alien species. No, he's actually a sweetheart, like crazy about his family, goofball. I think the only class of actor you got to worry about a little bit is like that 68-year-old male actor. I've been. The, the older male yeah. actors can be tough. Like the Gene Hackman types, Tommy Lee Jones, like they scare the crap out of me. The only guy that didn't scare me was Richard Jenkins, which is part of the reason we cast him. And also, he's awesome. But uh, he's the only one who's not like a little crazy. Or Dustin Hoffman's a nice guy, too. He's apparently- So you just won't hire anybody over 65. It sounds like a good plan. Yeah. They might, they might go I'm, at you. I'm trying to think if it's okay to say this. I, <laughs> I, I, I Equal, you're not directly Equalizer 3. You don't want to mess with Denzel. Adam McKay will never hire the elderly. <laughs> yeah, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. You can put that out into the public. Uh, no, the, the sad thing is older male actors are the funniest when you get the right actor like a Fred Willard. I can totally see how they, they would be completely intimidating, though. Like, how do you tell Al Pacino what to do in a scene uh, at this point? Apparently, he's a good guy, too. I've heard he's cool. Will you please Oh, do I had him on a podcast. Oh, did you really? I don't think he knew it was happening for about 20 <laughs> minutes. I think he thought we were like, I, he was like, I, once he realized what it was, I could see the light bulb go off, and then he started telling stories, and but I don't think he totally got it. I've heard I should have explained it better. I've heard he's His stories cool. were amazing. Will you please do, by the way, I've told you this before, the greatest- single thing you've ever done in your entire career is the Charles Oakley podcast. Oh, thank you. You know that, right? Well, that, it was in all your bones, Oakley. In your bones, you it know was, that. It was 1% me and 99% Oakley. He was just waiting for the right podcast proxy. Forget the percentages. <laughs> that, And then I love like two months after that, I hear that like he slapped a guy at a blackjack table or something. <laughs> I was like, please do everything you can. Will you do one week or or like a month of podcasts with people that scare me? That would be, I mean, the best thing with Oakley was. You got to be a little scared, right? Well, but I think I had written about him once and he liked it. So I felt like okay. I was in with him, but you still never know. And you never know like, well, one question like what happens if Oakley doesn't like something and now he's just stink eyeing me? What do I do? Because I, I had these two guys in the room. I was in the other was room. Was it right here? <laughs> yeah, in this I room? was in the other room. No, it was in uh, Cleveland. Uh, who would be the month of people that scare you? You got to do four of them. I'm with you. I think older people, the older set in the way actors. Tommy Lee Jones would be rough. Yeah. Well, I had, so I had Kurt Russell, who was great. 
Yeah. And he came in, it was like 10 in the morning, just wearing a leather jacket, looked like Kurt Russell, just had a Marlboro <laughs> Red outside. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this could be, but he was great. But yeah, the older guys, they they probably look at all this stuff. Let like, who the fuck are you? Book it. You won't know who's going to walk in the room. <laughs> just Ross a week of you booking. Honest to God, the four scariest people. I met <laughs> Vinny Jones. Is that his name? The soccer oh, player? Oh, yeah. He was scary. He was not cool. It was like, I don't mean Vinny to say Jones. not cool, Vinny. I'm sorry. You're awesome. You're amazing. Uh, it was a little scary. Let me book a month for you, people that will scare Bill Simmons. Well, we had Gucci Mane was on, who's had some issues in his life. He loved us. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. And by the end of it, he wanted to take me to a strip, a strip place in Atlanta. Can't remember the name of it, but yeah, he was. Oh my god! We can, I can usually win those people That's over. That's good. So, how long did you work on uh, Vice? Vice. How many years was this? How many years of your life? One. Vice was definitely deep end. It was the research for it was crazy. I made the incredibly dumb decision not to just buy a book. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I really, was there like the perfect Dick Cheney book though? There kind of wasn't in yeah. my opinion. Now, now let me be clear. There's amazing books about Dick Cheney, but they're all about chunks of his life or they focus on one aspect. And I wanted to do like the sweep. Cause I felt like it's, you know, at that point I was basically thinking like the history books about to close on Dick Cheney. Yeah. Like, this is it. We're done. The books have been written. He's like, I saw some TMZ video of him laughing in his SUV with like literally with TMZ. And his well, the Trump, the Trump things helped him too. Trump thing. It just feels like it's moved on. And yeah. I, I was just thinking like, wow, really? We're going to move on from that? Like, that's just gone? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I just dug into it and uh, read every book that was out there, every article. And then we hired our own journalist who went around and interviewed people. That was the best and got tons of like good insights. So that tidbit, like in the beginning of the movie, he basically, 9-11's happening. And he makes it seem like the president had given the order to shoot down That's an aircraft. True. That's true. So how do you get that tidbit? Because I don't know if I had known that before. So you read everything. And then you, there was actually congressional testimony. Oh. So Bush and Cheney testified together. And what you find is their story doesn't make sense. That the timing isn't right on it. And that he's saying, oh, yeah, at 5.52, I did this. Like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Right. And I, everything you read, is like, oh, they're lying. He clearly made the call. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a crazy day. Like, you know, I, I'm going to guess stuff like that might happen. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure he's wrong. Well, yeah, you know, he's wrong. You should go through the presence. <laughs> <on that. laughs> yeah. It seems uh, like a pretty big thing to uh, we try. So skip. we just triangulated like crazy because Cheney really is that secretive. So we had to read everything, talk to everyone. I was struck that watching the movie that how little I knew about him, this person who was super yeah. impactful last decade, but even at what, at what like a happy accident, I guess, or unhappy accident for some people, just how he ascended in the 70s, which mainly because of the Nixon White House. Crazy. The Nixon White House craters. Everybody's losing their job left and right. And he goes from being like a fucking intern to a chief of staff in like any, three years. Any Republican was gold. I actually didn't put it in the movie, but they asked him to join the campaign to reelect Richard Nixon, which is where everyone got busted out of. And uh, for some reason, he said no. He got very lucky on that. And Rumsfeld had been exiled. And that's how those two guys survived. There's, it's actually true that the day that Ford was being sworn in, Cheney and Rumsfeld were driving from the airport. So while Ford was saying our long national nightmare is over, 
Cheney and Rumsfeld were driving to the White House. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a crazy story because he's just, I had the same thing as you. I just didn't know that much about him. I knew like he shot a guy in the face. I knew that they called him Darth Vader. I knew he pulled some strings and I knew Valerie Plame story and kind of that he was involved in the run up to Iraq. And when I looked into it, I was just amazed like how calculated it all was. Like he knew exactly what he was doing and how brilliant he was. I mean, it's kind of amazing. 12 years after getting two DUIs, the guy's chief of staff in the White House. Right. Yeah. Well, and also you make this point. There's some, at some point you flash a quote. I forget what the exact wording is, but it's basically like the people who are quiet. Yeah. Those are the ones you got to watch out for. And I was thinking like, that is a move. And I'm old enough now that I've dealt with different type of bosses and different people going back to ESPN or whatever. But the quiet people who you never kind of know what they're thinking, those are always like the dangerous ones. Oh, yeah. They put they, they keep it close to the vest and they might be killing you in private or doing whatever. You'll never know. It's definitely like if you're playing the game, the move is to be quiet. Belichick. And- Belichick says fucking nothing, nothing, nothing. Uh, There's an interview with Douglas Fife who worked with Cheney. And he actually said, like, when you talk to Cheney in the beginning, your voice is about this octave. And by the end, your voice just keeps going up and up and up because he gives you nothing. You're trying to make up for the lost energy. And you're like filling in for the gap. And he said, by the, I start here. And by the end, I'm kind of up here going, so anyway, we're going to do that. And like, this is one of his guys saying this and uh, yes, whole game is, I mean, Lynn Cheney actually said, if you want to understand my husband, you have to know one thing. He's a fisherman. So that's his whole game is like patience, wait at the bend of the river. If it ain't happening, that's okay. Like he's fine with like pulling back and waiting a year, like, uh, and just detail, detail, detail. Yeah. He's a, incredible figure man i mean it's he really could argue he changed america and the world as much as anyone in the last 30 40 years it's nuts well and then you think uh you're doing a movie about this guy who you clearly probably don't like that much i would say it's safe to say well i have but you're trying to make him a a human being a human being which you know, my rule of the movie is if you're making a movie about anybody i'm gonna start rooting for them at some point during the movie Cause you, always, I, I just watched Escape at Dana Mora. The, the is great. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. It really is, and it, but it's long, but it's it's worth it. And these were horrible guys. And by the end of it, I'm like, <laughs> no, no, so don't stay in the cabin. You got to get out. I'm like rooting for them to escape. <laughs> and they're horrible. They would have gone and killed people if they had escaped. But it's just something about the yeah. the movies, TV. They suck you in. And it's the same thing with Vice. Like about half of them, I'm like, ah, Dick Cheney, Paul Thomas. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson came to a screening and he's like, why do you have me rooting for Cheney and Rumsfeld to destroy democracy right. during the four years? Like I'm kind of cheering them on and like, yeah. Well, I mean, the it other was the biggest I- criticism for the movie, right? That oh, yeah. Cheney was yeah, too yeah. sympathetic. Some people thought that we humanized them too much. My feeling was that if you don't humanize them, it's a waste of time. I mean, well, the then whole- you turn them into like Hannibal Lecter. Exactly. Like you may as well put a fucking metal mask on them and reel totally. them into 9 11 meetings. Which I would watch that movie <laughs> as well, by the way. <laughs> but also, what we found was that he was a regular schmo when he was in Wyoming. His brother yeah. and sister, the brother's like a plumber. And everyone in Casper, we interviewed people, said whoever Lynn Vincent, Lynn Cheney would have chosen as her husband would have been president or vice president. I mean, in a weird way, the story is kind of hers. Yeah. It really is. Like, but she, she is in the speech in the beginning. She's, ups- she's like, 
I've chosen you. <laughs> She's a badass. You're man. letting me down. My friend of mine got called by her like about 20 years ago about something he said. I have never been yelled at by another grown-up like I was just yelled at by Lynn Cheney. Like, she's tough, man, and whip smart. So, yeah, the fact that he started as a regular guy, like the the kind of movie I use for the comparison was Sid and Nancy. Yeah. That I felt like, you know, Sid was just a goof, That's interesting. Yeah, a yeah. goofball bass player, and he met Nancy, and he loved her, but she happened to be a junkie. So if you're going to date a junkie, let's get into it. And- was was Bale, like, on the set? He's just... Does he stay like that 20, 24 hours a day or can he snap in and out of it? He's pretty cool with it. And so is Amy and Sam Rockwell. They all kind of do it. What they do is they keep the voice, they keep the physicality, but you can talk to them as the, themselves. So he'd never say, call me Dick Cheney. So he'd be like, you know, how you doing, Adam? Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the kids just dropped him off at school. So he would talk to you like Christian Bale. And Man, this is, actors are fucking weird. That's like awesome. it's, it's oh. to be able to do that is really strange. I actually, think, I really respect it. Like, I, I don't understand how anybody can do that. I might have to, I might ask people to call me the character. Like I'm probably such a bad actor. Yeah. That I would have to be like, you got to call me. the Yeah. Character. I have to stay in it. Yeah. 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 So, and he put on the weight, he did all that stuff. I mean, it's crazy. he, it's crazy. he really, when I heard he was playing Dick Cheney, I was like, that's ridiculous. Like that. I, I can't see it. And then you watch the movie. It's like, Oh, yeah. First day that it all clicked, you know, we had this Academy Award winning makeup guy, Greg Canham, and we worked it and worked it and worked it. He was putting on the weight. He was working on the character. First day that it clicked where he's in the suit, the makeup's right. He's got all the moves and the psychology figured out. He goes, hey, Adam, check it out. I figured out the walk. And he walks down the hallway and he does the Cheney walk. And I, I no exaggeration, I get goosebumps up wow. down my arms. And I was just like, you're not, I jokingly, I was like, you're not playing him. You're summoning him. Dick Cheney is now in the room. And the whole movie, it was like that. He would walk by you and it felt like Dick Cheney. It, it was, it was eerie. It was crazy. So I like getting people after the movie comes out. Cause now you've, you've done the circuit already. I feel yep. like yep. You, you've come out of it. The movie's come out. Yeah. People I've got no canned stories about anymore. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what out of the feedback, has there been one thing that surprised you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is it? Well, you know. I mean, we got crazy divisive responses yeah. on this movie. I but, mean, did, but you weren't expecting that, though? We were expecting it. We knew it was coming. We knew the right wing was going to come after us. We knew some of the kind of professional journalist class would be like, hey, get out of our backyard. We knew that was coming. But I didn't expect it to be that strong on both sides. I mean, there are reviews that are like, this is the greatest movie ever. And there are reviews literally like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. I've never experienced it that strong before. Usually like, you know, hey, we love it. Eh, it's okay. Couple bad ones. But this one is either, I love this. This is the most, like we just won some film festival yesterday, the Capri Film Festival, in the midst of me being told that we got another terrible review. Like, so the whole process has kind of been like this, where it's like, Horrible review, great review, uh, email from a friend I respect saying that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard to turn on the radio, guy hates it. And I, we did expect divisiveness, but I didn't know it'd be at this level. I, at the I, same time, you kind of like that, though. I kind of love it, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> I mean, that was I, like Anchorman too. You love that people love either it. were all in or they were mad about it, with, and that was it. We did a show in Chicago called Pinata Full of Bees at Second City that among Second City heads, they all know about it. And it was a very unusual show. We broke a lot of their forms. 
And there were people that loved it and hated it. And it was the first show, Second City Main Stage, in like 20 or 30 years that got no local theater award nominations. None. Like all the people in town who saw it were like, no. And, but of all the things I did in Chicago, that's the one people still talk about and stuff. So it feels really appropriate. And of course, the Europeans love it. Like we've been showing it in the UK yeah. and they go crazy for it. But um, no, I think it's good. As long as it keeps motoring, the only fear you have is that it just kind of goes away. But it's not. It's still out there. There's still these I have no for award season. I have no feel for what's going to happen. With None. It. None at all. Because you did pretty well at the Globes, right? Yeah, we got like a ton of nominations, like six. And then we got a bunch for Critics' Choice, like eight, I think. Yeah. And it's the wild card of this Oscars. It is a wild card. I mean, I would think at the least, man, you got to acknowledge these crazy performances. I mean, Christian and Amy Adams are like next, next, next level. And that score is pretty incredible. And the makeup, too. So I would I would hope at least that would get junk. But, you know, awards you never know. And it is a, such a crazy, fiery, you know, cleaver-splitting kind of movie. We'll see what happens. But, yeah, it's been a, it's been a bucking bronco. I was laughing with a friend the other day. I was like, I, I don't think – I think the last time I was on a bucking bronco like this was Step Brothers, but I didn't care. Right. <laughs> and, you know, so uh, – yeah, it's been interesting. Man. Well, you also, you created The Ringer's favorite new show of 2017. You oh. were involved in the in the whole thing with that. You and Jesse Armstrong. God, I love that show, Succession. And you guys, you guys, once again, I'm going to give you credit. You were about a couple days earlier than the rest of the we world. We were like four weeks earlier. Yeah. That. We, that, that was a good moment for our site because we kind of started to trust, like, if we really like something, just go all in on it. It was and cool. if- if people don't follow, that's okay. But we just felt like this show's really good. Something's going to happen. I mean, I was watching each episode as it came in. Yeah. So I I was loving it because I compare it to like early Neil Labute. Like it's got this hard edge, but yeah. it's brilliantly funny. Like, or, you know, it's Jesse Armstrong writing. I can say that. But, um, and so right away I loved it. But then when it got to that third and fourth episode, I was like, oh, we're on a rocket ship at this point. And that's when my wife started walking in when I would look at it to give it notes. And she started watching it behind me going, oh my God. And uh, the third episode's the key. And I think that was one of the reasons the reviewers got thrown off. Yeah. Because yeah. they'll watch the first two. It also didn't have my biggest issue when I watched the pilot, I was like, oh man, I just wish uh what's the Jeremy Strong character's name? Uh Kendall. I was like, man, I just wish there was a, a more famous actor for Kendall. I just wish that oh. was a better part. And then by episode seven, I'm like, I fucking love Jeremy Strong. See, we, like, we that knew, was part of the key to the show. We knew that Jeremy Strong is one of the best actors on the yeah. planet. Like we were confident in that. So that scene where he goes in the bathroom and freaks out is like one of my favorite scenes. There are a couple of scenes in there when he confronts his dad in the dining room too. I was like, I think that's one of the best scenes I've ever shot. Like, yeah. Oh, how many did you direct? Just the pilot, just the pilot, which is the funnest because you get to cast. No, the it, funnest you get to was get the, the look. The funnest was the bachelor party. Episode. Oh no, no, not the funnest episode. I'm the just saying the funnest of the hour of my life. Oh, the bachelor party is <laughs> the best. But to make it the pilot, you get to cast it. Yeah, you get yeah, to that's set great. the look. I mean, it was it was fantastic. Bachelor party. Oh my god. Well, the uh, what was the one uh, second to last? They're all good. The run out. The one where he's trying to run to the board meeting. Is that episode five? I think that it was. Yeah, it was oh. the fourth one. Oh my god, that was good. Yeah, that was when it really became clear 
it was like, oh, yeah. okay. So, th- so this is not going where I thought it was going to go. God the bachelor be- party was when I fell in love. God bless. Because I was like, this show's fucking weird, and I love it, <sighs> and I don't know where it's that going. Thing about him swallowing the. Can I say it? The cum. Yeah. Yeah. She spat it in my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how dirty <laughs> it was. I hot. This. It was hot. <laughs> it was hot. It was hot. And then, it, and then eventually by the end, even he knows it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also, did you, were you involved in casting the sister? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that's the key role of the show. Everything. Yeah. 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 We were a uh, Francine Maisler. Uh, we went through every character. It was incredible. She's fantastic. Amazing. Amazing. What happens with her career-wise? So like, she, could she be like Julianne Moore? Oh, I think she's heavy duty. I think that's I mean, a She's going to be like an A-list actress, oh, right? yeah, yeah. And she is and kind of was. Everyone knew that's what she was going to be. Yeah. And Francine Maisler was like, you have to cast her. And then she came in and read and we were just like, this is over with. My favorite is um, who plays Roman. What's his name? Um, oh, Culkin. Culkin. Culkin wasn't supposed to read for that role. We asked him to read for like Kendall stupidly. Yeah. And he showed up in New York and he just went on tape, which usually when you go on tape, what you're hoping for is come on in and read for us. Yeah. And we watched it. We were like, that's it. That's wrong. And then we just called him. We were like, you got it. And like, no one gets anything off of tape. And then he showed up and it was like, we were all so jacked on ourselves at that point. It was like, we knew that off of tape. And he was like, Perfect, like every single moment. Yeah. Did you have the first season sketched out or multiple seasons? Uh, first season, but then Jesse kind of is thinking longer arcs. I've read the first three outlines for the second season, and I just got the first two scripts, so I'm kind of getting into that with notes. Wait, but... that doesn't sound like it's coming out in 2019 then. Oh, it is. They're moving. Okay. Oh, yeah. It is. I mean, right, they're going to roll. We're, we're banking on it. Oh, no. That is, that is without the a doubt. needs it. We need. Without a doubt. And we have a couple shows we're counting on this year. <laughs> Content. They're going to be writing while they're shooting. I mean, it's going to roll right into the thing. It gets going in like a month, I think. This is a good year for us because we have Thrones. We got Billions. We got Big Little Lies. Wow. We got Succession. Man, that's a lot. I mean, it's like we like the shows. Thrones we can just go all dominate, right? Is this the oh, last? Thrones were Thrones were treating like it's the NBA playoffs yeah, of yeah, you should. mankind. Uh, are we allowed to talk NBA at all? Or? Fuck yeah, let's do it. How much? How much more time do you have? Oh, uh, all right. Ah, oh. all right. I went, uh, we went uh, way over. One quick thing. Well, do you want to just come back and talk NBA oh, in a couple months? Later. Yeah, well, that give was me really the one fun. quick thing though. Yeah, Jonathan Isaac for. Orlando. <laughs> That's your one thing? Jonathan Isaac? I'm I'm laying it down right here. You're laying it down. I'm laying it down. I think 18 points a game. Wow. Seven assists, nine rebounds. There's, In like three years? Yeah. Yeah. Two, three years. Percolating there. Percolating there. Per, that's your that's your big NBA I, comment. I that's my big and well, no, I have a lot of NBA. Who's your comment. favorite team? I'm a weird guy because I grew up a Celtics fan, hardcore Celtics fan. And, uh, but then, Smart man. and then I moved to New York for a long time and the Knicks overtook me. Oh, and, wow. But the Knicks kind of- It's aren't- like falling in love with like a <laughs> terrible girlfriend. Who's <laughs> <laughs> like a crack addict. <laughs> and then I moved out here and now I'm like, I don't care. I just watch every team. I'm in a, you know, a junkie. Who do your kids root for? Uh, they like the Warriors and the Clippers a little bit, but I, my favorite team right now, Clippers are so sad. I like the Bucks right now. I'm really the Bucks have been fun. Yeah, there's something going on there that's yeah. interesting. I also, my crazy, I think the Suns are a player away. 
they they they're probably gonna eat that player in the lottery I next year so. when they're like third. Yeah, they've nice, been picking at the top forever. Really, really nice stuff going on there that I kind of like. Yeah. Uh, and Aiton kind of woke up lately too. Had a couple a bit. big games. I don't yeah. know if I trust it. Even mm-hmm. if he's kind of mediocre, like C plus. You I never was, did a sports movie though. Bringing it full circle. No, I was dying to. I wanted to do. They did that uh, semi pro, and I just didn't think that was the one. And uh, I will. I will. All right. I want to do I look, I look forward to that. Uh, so glad we got to uh, do this. This is great. Good luck. Uh, good luck in award season. I know you mostly do commercials because you guys, I guess, get paid for them. Can I do one real quick? Yeah, do one. Yeah. Burger King, only $1.99 for 10 nugget pack. That's right. Burger King, $1.99 with a drink for 99 cents at your local Burger King. Thanks, Amazing. Bill. Bill, that's Amazing. classy. Let me do it. That, that was great. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I would have given you a real read to do. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, good luck with the movie. Thank you. Thank you so much, right. man.